Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am Dave Hellman. And just like that, we are on to week 13. Guess we're two thirds of the way through the NFL regular season. Everybody has just six, in some cases, five games left to play. I can't believe there's still a handful of teams that are just now having their bye week or haven't even entered their bye week. Seems awfully late to be getting the week off, but just six or so, give or take. Games remaining. Can't believe it's already moving this quickly. As we wrap up week 12, got a wonderful show for you today. We're going to get into all the news and notes coming out of Sunday. As I promised on Monday's show, we're going to take a deeper look at the 10-1 and Philadelphia Eagles, the best team in the NFL. As we always do on Tuesdays, we'll have the power rankings looking at how everybody's moving up and down the NFL hierarchy. But of course, a football game was played on Monday night. Something happened on Monday night in Minneapolis. The Chicago Bears failed to find the end zone and they still managed to sneak past the Minnesota Vikings 12 to 10. It, it was a game, y'all. Something something took place. Entering Monday night, NFL teams were 0-28 this season when failing to score a touchdown. The Chicago Bears bumped that number to 1-28. to 12-10. Once every so often, the nation's eyes are transfixed by the horror of what is playing out in front of them. You know, there's there's bad football, and then there's football that becomes so bad that it gets good. Right around the time you have your fourth or fifth turnover of the game, right around the time you realize both teams are actively trying to lose, you become transfixed by a game that was otherwise forgettable. It happened last year on a Thursday night, Colts-Broncos, you remember the one, and it certainly happened on Monday night between the Bears and the Vikings. Chicago Bears, if you're watching, if you see that graphic, the first Bears win without scoring a touchdown in 30 years. Jim Harbaugh, the coach of the Michigan Wolverines, gearing up to play in the Big Ten title game. He was their quarterback. Just beautiful displays of football like this just only come around every so often. Josh Dobbs, the pastronaut, the hero of Minnesota, just got there a month ago. 
I'm not going to say the slipper came off of Cinderella's foot because the Vikings are still very much alive in the playoff race, but four interceptions from Josh Dobbs, easily his worst game of this Vikings tenure. Three of them are tipped. Two of them are tipped by his own teammates, just not his night with the turnover luck. Justin Fields says, I see that and I raise you two fumbles, both of them coming in the fourth quarter with the Bears trying to pull this thing out. Looks like they were going to give it away. The Vikings score the game's only touchdown with just a few minutes to play. Still managed to not win this game. We'll get to why. A train wreck the likes of which we only get once or twice per year. There have been some bad games in prime time this season, but typically that's that's been a blowout or just an overall uninspiring game. This was something different. Ironically, the only play that we really need to go through was the 36-yard dart from Justin Fields to DJ Moore. Third and 10, about a minute to play. Again, Bears get the ball. After the field's turnover, the Vikings fail to put the game away. About a minute to play, third and 10 from midfield. 36-yard, I'll say it again, dart. A really, really beautiful throw to DJ Moore. And I know it was beautiful because it was the only beautiful throw of the night. It was the longest gain of the night. And it was also the only time Justin Fields even tried to push the ball down the field. Roughly half of his throws were either at or near the line of scrimmage. Luke Getze, the Bears OC, is just like, absolutely not. Brian Flores likes to blitz. He blitzed the hell out of us at Soldier Field. The first time we played this game, Justin Fields got hurt in that game. We ain't doing it anymore. Clearly afraid of the reputation that Flores has and the way the Vikings have managed to get home this season. It's the only time DJ Moore even tried to move the ball that far downfield. And if that wasn't ironic enough, Flores didn't even bring any pressure. That's how it happened in the first place. They hung back. They played coverage. Gave Fields all the time he needed to throw, and it winds up biting him. Hits DJ Moore. Bears kneel out the clock all the way down to the final 20 or so seconds. Go ahead on the field goal. The Vikings did make a valiant effort on the, the fumble ruski 10 million laterals play. Didn't wind up working out for him. I, I'm hoping I haven't already said too much about this game. It wasn't one worth remembering. Throw to DJ Moore was really nice. Justin Fields wouldn't say anything else about Fields' performance was particularly good or memorable. This is, a, this is a game that's not worth talking about again until we have another singular stinker. Like once every year or three, we can say, oh, that almost sucked as much as the Bears-Vikings game on Monday night in week 12 of 2023. All right, I'm done. Vikings are now the NFC's seventh seed. They fall a spot in the standings, but they are still a playoff team. They now have Green Bay breathing down their necks. The rival Packers are hanging out right there, just one win behind them. For the Chicago Bears, their first division win in nine in 10 tries, excuse me, under head coach Matt Eberflus, one and nine in the NFC North. Hey, you got one. I, I guess at that point, you're not going to complain about how you get them. Chicago Bears, four and eight on the year. I bet they feel nice that at the very least, they know the Panthers are hanging on to the top draft pick for them by virtue of that trade. And speaking of which, the Carolina Panthers are where we start 
the week 13 news and notes, some big news happening in Charlotte on Monday morning. It's not a fun part of football season, but we have reached that point in the year where when you go to bed after a game gets played, you can wake up with a reasonable expectation that somewhere in the league, there will have been a staff shakeup. We already saw it happen in Las Vegas with Josh McDaniels. Washington fired defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio after their Thanksgiving game. And now here on Monday, we get our second head coach firing of the season. The Carolina Panthers fresh off of that 17 loss to the Tennessee Titans. They fire first year head coach Frank Reich. Panthers are one in 10 worst record in the league. Interesting thing about it, in my opinion, is just Panthers owner David Tepper just hired Reich in January, got the job on January 26th. 10 months and one day later, 11 games into his tenure, he gets the boot. Now, I would have said before we did this segment that first-year head coaches don't tend to get fired that quickly into their tenures. I'll tell you this, it's becoming more and more common. I mean, just last year, we saw it happen in Denver and Houston. You can look at 10 or so examples over the last decade where just one year into their tenure, NFL teams get fed up with their coach. Tepper, the owner in Carolina, has now fired head coaches in back-to-back seasons. That's pretty unique. And even more remarkable than that, Frank Reich is the first head coach since the merger all the way back in 1970 to get fired from his job in back-to-back years. Remember, he was the head coach in Indianapolis last year that opened the door for the ill-fated Jeff Saturday tenure. Imagine imagine what it takes to get fired from two different head coaching jobs in two different years. He's got roughly somewhere around 50 or $60 million owed to him by these two franchises. I hope Frank Reich has the longest, most extravagant vacation planned in history. Like, look, you come back and coach in 2024 if that's what you want to do, Frank. But from now until... Valentine's Day until spring, you're off the grid, my man. You're on a beach. You're sipping Mai Tais. Do something with that hard-earned money that these teams decided they didn't mind parting ways with. The reasoning for the firing, pretty obvious. Panthers are bottom five in offense in every metric that you could imagine. Yardage, scoring, DVOA. I don't know if watchability is a metric, but they are the least fun offense to watch in the NFL. They've only scored more than 20 points two or three times all year. Over the last five weeks, they're averaging 12 points per game. It's brutal to watch the Carolina Panthers play offense, and that would be bad regardless. It's especially bad when you traded away this upcoming first-round draft pick to go up and draft Bryce Young number one overall. Yeah. The Panthers are supposed to have the most exciting rookie in the league on their team. That guy is in Houston right now, goes by the name of CJ Stroud. And I'm not going to bag on Bryce Young. I think there's a lot of reasons why he's struggling in Carolina, but it ultimately goes at the foot of the offensive-minded head coach when he's averaging 188 yards per game, nine touchdown passes to eight interceptions on the season, sacked 40 times by the Panthers' awful offensive line. The only reliable weapon in Carolina's offense is Adam Thielen, who is much closer to the end of his career than the beginning. It's bad. It's really, really bad. I understand the frustration. In a vacuum, I completely get why you fire a head coach for this performance. 
But let's bring it back around to David Tepper, the owner of the Panthers. Context matters. And you remember Tepper handpicked Frank Reich to lead this franchise, again, just 10 months ago. He let Reich oversee that decision to draft Bryce Young. And if all of that wasn't indicative enough, this is now the sixth head coach of David Tepper's ownership, if you include interim coaches. He's only owned the team since 2018. So if I can do basic math, that's six head coaches in six years. Fired Ron Rivera when he got there, then dismissed interim head coach Perry Fuel right after that. Hired Matt Rule, then fired him. Dismissed interim head coach Steve Wilkes, who actually led the Panthers on a nice little run at the end of last year. Hired and then fired Frank Reich. And now he's got special teams coordinator Chris Tabor in the head co- in the interim head coaching role. Chris Tabor, by the way, fired quarterbacks coach Josh McCown and running backs coach Deuce Staley. That's somewhat normal. Interim head coaches do have some say in personnel after they take the job. But all of this is me trying to say something is stinky in Carolina, and it seems to coincide with the ownership tenure. 30 and 63 since David Tepper took over. Again, six head coaches have worked for the Panthers in six years. Something to keep in mind as we wait to see where they go from here, but Carolina Panthers quickly throwing their hat into the ring for one of the NFL's most dysfunctional franchises over the last few years. Plenty of other news from around the league heading into week 13, and from the sounds of it, at least one of the NFL's other struggling franchises won't be making a coaching change. I'm talking about the New York Giants who enter their bye week actually on a two-game win streak. Obviously, it's still not the season they'd prefer to be having. But when a team goes into their bye week, it's often a time where we'll hear from the team's general manager. Even you know the teams where executives typically don't have a lot to say, the bye week is a time to kind of pause and reflect on what's happened, see where you're going. That's what happened Monday. Giants general manager Joe Shane spoke to reporters in New York. And among the highlights, I thought Shane said, Giants ownership is on board with his and Brian Dable's long-term plan for turning the Giants around. I don't think that's particularly newsworthy. Brian Dable just won NFL Coach of the Year a year ago. I know it's been bad for Big Blue, but I would have thought it was really premature and very un-Giants-like to make that type of change just one year removed from winning a playoff game. So kind of relieved to hear that it seems like that'll be the case as they move forward. Plenty of other notes from Shane's media appearance, though. He talked plenty about Daniel Jones, said the Giants still believe in their franchise quarterback, and he will be their starter when he's healthy. My main takeaway, my main advice from hearing that is not to take NFL general managers at their word about much, especially as they shift into draft mode, which is what I think the Giants will be doing very, very soon if they haven't already. I'm old enough to remember, I assume you are too, how publicly the Arizona Cardinals backed first-round pick Josh Rosen right up until they drafted Kyler Murray the very next year. We don't know what's going to happen. Tommy DeVito's got the Giants having some fun for the first time this season, so maybe they'll play their way out of a big-time draft pick anyway. But I'm here to tell you right now, if the Giants hold on to a top three, four, five, six draft pick, all bets are off. Don't believe anything you hear. So thank you for that, Joe Shane. But I wasn't born yesterday. We'll see what happens in New York. Down in Houston, the Texans claimed recently released Philadelphia defensive end Derek Barnett off of waivers. Remember, everybody is subject to waivers at this time of year, no matter what. 
Barnett was a first round pick of the Eagles all the way back in 2017, 21 and a half sacks for Philly over the course of his career. Just was not getting enough run in that loaded pass rush. So go on and figure out something else. Greener pastures. Shout out to Derek Barnett, though. I hope Eagles fans always remember it was he that recovered that huge fumble by Tom Brady in Super Bowl 52. So he's off to Houston. Hopefully you have at least a few fond memories. We'll see if D'Amico Ryans can find a use for him. Talked about the Browns on Monday. Some big injury reports from Cleveland. Remember, they are here in L.A. this week. They're prepping for their game against the Rams this weekend on the West Coast. On the plus side, sounds like Miles Garrett is at least okay. I hate to say, look, no football player is healthy as we get close to December. Everybody's playing through something, but Miles Garrett said he felt a pop in his left shoulder against the Broncos on Sunday. You never want to hear that. You don't want to hear people say they heard a pop, but he is officially day-to-day, according to the Browns, so it sounds like whatever happened to his shoulder at the very least, it's not a long-term issue. Huge sigh of relief for the Browns. Mari Cooper also expected to be all right after getting x-rays on his ribs. That all seems like very positive news for Cleveland. On the downside, rookie quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson is officially in concussion protocol. Means there's a very decent chance we won't see him this weekend. There have been at least one or two cases of players going into protocol and playing the next week, but it doesn't happen often. So I would say his status is, if you want to say, up in the air, in doubt, whatever. My only question, would the Browns potentially turn back to P.J. Walker, or do we see the debut of Joe Flacco, Cleveland Brown, right here at SoFi Stadium on Sunday? No offense to P.J. Walker, but I know what would be more entertaining for me. We'll see what happens there. Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Baker Mayfield underwent an MRI on his ankle after the loss to Indianapolis. Those were negative. Sounds like that's good news. I'm going to keep saying it. Baker Mayfield's honestly having a pretty solid season for Tampa Bay, but it's just not translating to results. They play the Panthers, who now do not have a head coach or fired their head coach at least. If they can't get a win against lowly Carolina at home this weekend, I say go ahead and put a fork in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the season. So sounds like good news. They should have Baker Mayfield available for that. Finishing off the injury news with the Eagles, all pro light right tackle Lane Johnson officially considered day to day with the groin injury that held him out against the bills. Wasn't even on the injury report last week, but he felt soreness told the team about it over the weekend. They decided to hold him out against the bills. It's gotta be a huge, huge boost The numbers for the Eagles with Lane and without are stark. So to know that they can beat Buffalo without him, it's got to be a huge boost for the Eagles. But my guess is knowing who's up next, the San Francisco 49ers, you're going to have to handcuff Lane Johnson to a locker to keep him off the field for that game. So sounds like good news on that front. It is a perfect transition. As I promised yesterday, We've got a deep dive on the Eagles planned for today. Who better to do that with than my good buddy, Fox Sports NFC East writer Ralph Vacchiano is here to talk about all things with the 10-1 and Eagles and their MVP candidate quarterback, Jalen Hurts. All right, Ralph, the Eagles down the Buffalo Bills 37-34 in overtime on Sunday. It's the type of game that two days later, there's still plenty 
that's worth revisiting. What what a win for the Philadelphia Eagles. And you were there at the link on Sunday evening in, in the rain and the grime and all the paint washed out of the end zones by the end of that thing. For starters, I mean, can you just set the scene for us of, you know, what a thrilling win and and what that environment was like? Well, it's a great environment. It's it's one of my favorite stadiums in the NFL. A great crowd. Uh, they're obviously fired up by the, what the Eagles have done the last couple of years. Uh, and anytime you get a football game in weather, it just adds to it because you know, everybody's just sitting there, and especially in the first couple of quarters. They're miserable. They're in the rain. The team stinks. They're booing like crazy. And you get this incredible turnaround in the fourth quarter where it's just like this release from the entire city of Philadelphia. And uh, it was like a party after that. Honestly, the, the end of the fourth quarter overtime, it was just so wild in the stands and so great to see. And, you know, afterwards, even though it was late, even though it was still raining, a lot of people stayed around for a little while, too, and kept that party going. So just a, a tremendous atmosphere and a tremendous finish. I would have done the same. Uh, all right. <laughs> this is let's let's start here. This is my favorite stat that I've seen from this. Shout out to our producers for for tipping me off. Eagles are five and zero when trailing at halftime this season. The rest of the NFL, thirty five and one twenty nine. If my math is right, that's a a nice little twenty one percent win percentage. So the Eagles yes. do, doing this a hell of a lot better than everybody else. I mean, do we? I, whether you want to call it resiliency, do you want to call it adaptability? Whether you just want to say they're clutch. I mean, what is this and where does it come from? Well, you know, I'm, I'm amazed by it, honestly. And, you know, we've seen it now for two years, but more so this year. There, there are a lot of these games where I feel like I'm watching the Eagles and I think they didn't play that well, but somehow they pull it out in the end. And, you know, I wonder sometimes if my expectations are just too high because I think they're so good. But a stat like that shows me that I'm kind of right because they're often not playing very well in the first half, and then they somehow put it together. And, you know, we asked Nick Sirianni and a lot of the players after this game, what is it about this team that allows them to do that? And um, the best answer that they have is that they have a lot of guys who know how to win. And it comes from a core of veterans who were around for their Super Bowl team from, what is that, seven years ago now? Um, a bunch of guys from the Super Bowl team last year uh, you know, they drafted, obviously, we know they drafted, I think, what is it, five or six guys they have on the team from the University of, the, of Georgia and that powerhouse down there. They get guys from Alabama, a lot of big school guys who are used to winning. And they seem to really believe that once you get used to winning, once you are accustomed to what it takes, you find a way. You don't, you know, panic in those bad situations where other players and other teams might do it. And, um, you know, I think even more more than all that, it comes from the quarterback, who is as calm a quarterback as I can ever remember seeing. And I covered Eli Manning for a lot of years, and he barely had a pulse most of the time. But Jalen Hurts in those situations, when a game is on the line, is just so cool and so collected. Um, you know, and, and players look to him and they see, well, he's got it. I don't know how he's got it, but he's got it. And I believe, and somehow in the end, they pull it out. That's where I was going to go next. I mean, Jalen Hurts feels emblematic for this entire team because his his season individually is a lot like the Eagles. I mean, Sunday against the Bills, halftime, 55 total yards, one touchdown, an interception, and a fumble. You sit there at the break and you're like, 
man, this it just doesn't look like the guy that I remember from last year. It's not as clean. It's not as dominant. And then the game ends. He runs into the end zone on QB draw right there in overtime, and he finishes with 210 yards in the second half, four touchdowns and no turnovers. I'm curious where you stand on this. I mean, similar to the Eagles, you know, they 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 find a way to get it done. It might not always look pretty, but they're 10 and one. I think the same thing could be said for Jalen Hurts. Is is that enough that he is a deserving MVP front runner right now? Oh, I think he is. I think, you know, he might not have the stats in the end, um, although I think he's going to have the touchdowns. If you combine that with his rushing stats uh, and obviously the wins, it's going to be, uh, you know, really sexy to a lot of voters. But he's not going to throw for, you know, 4,500 yards, 35 touchdowns or or anything that's going to, you know, really be eye-popping on the passing charts. But you put it all together and you put those wins with it. And I don't know that there's a more valuable player in the entire league. Uh, you know, I, I would always lean towards quarterbacks with that award because they, they mean so much to their team and it's such a complicated position. But, um, you know, he does things that I don't see a lot of other quarterbacks do. And it's not just the two-way threat. It's the settling everybody down and, you know, finding a way all the time in those clutch situations. And maybe not you know, game-winning drives all the time or game-tying drives, but just in the second half when he needs to just find one play and, you know, you'll look at it and a play will be completely broken down and all of a sudden he'll be running in the open field. Or you'll have a play like, uh, you know, the one he threw to uh, Devonta Smith, the touchdown, uh, where, you know, he's got a receiver running right between or two receivers running right with a safety right in between. He can only guess which way the safety is going to go and he picks the right guy always seems to have the right reads in the right situations. Um, and even his touchdown run to win the game was a play. His teammates said that, you know, the, the look on defense that the uh, that the Bills gave was bad for that play. But he kept telling them, just wait, the safety is going to move out of my way. The safety is going to move. And you saw him wait to snap the ball. And sure enough, the safety and another guy move out of the way. And he runs right into the open spots. So there's just so much that he does. Uh, he he has to be in the conversation, if, if nothing else. I mean, I, I completely agree. And look, you look at it there. The the interceptions have been up this year, but and and I get. I mean, I, I can hear people at home that say wins are not a quarterback stat. It's not all about wins, but when you combine, look, I mean, they have won more games than anybody in the NFL. And when he is at the epicenter of all of these comebacks and second half performances. There's a lot of season left, but I I don't have a problem with it here, you know, coming out of Thanksgiving at the very least. I think I think what's going to hurt him is that he's surrounded by so much talent. And you know, you're going to see that even like coach of the year votings, you know, you'll see a guy well, they'll say, "Well, he's doing a great job, but look at the talent that he's got there." And you know, nobody has better receivers than Jalen Hurts. No one has a better offensive line. Uh, they have a defense that steps up pretty well. They got a good running game, he's got a good tight end. He's surrounded by plenty of guys, and you might look and try to find someone else. You know, maybe Josh Allen, if he puts up a lot of numbers and the Bills start winning again, doesn't have that kind of talent around him, and that might sway some voters. But you know, I, I get it. I think it's a little unfair to Jalen Hurts though, because I just think it minimizes what he does and how he contributes to those players and that talent and how he makes the whole thing work. I know he's on a great roster, and we can move on after this, but. Look, I mean, and and I get it. Wins are not just purely about the quarterback, but who are the guys after Jalen Hurts in this conversation? Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, maybe Dak Prescott, 
uh, throw in Brock Purdy as well. Well, he's beaten three of those guys already, and he gets a chance to go against Brock Purdy this weekend with San Francisco coming to town, which leads me to this next part. I am curious. Okay. Talked a lot about 10 wins. The Eagles are they're four and against current playoff teams. The resume speaks for itself, but they are home underdogs early in the week against the San Francisco 49ers, two and a half points. It's not a huge spread, but that that's a little, that's a little wild when you see it. And I, I guess I get why, because the, the Eagles have a penchant for the dramatic, but do you think that's fair? Well, it surprised me when I saw it. Um, I don't think the Eagles should be underdogs to anyone at this point, uh, you know, because they usually find a way to win. And, uh, you know, they're they're home, too, which made it even more surprising. If you're going to give three points to the home team, uh, which I guess what used to be the standard, I, I assume it still is, uh, you know, you're expecting the 49ers to win by a considerable amount. And I don't know that that's uh, – I, I don't think there's that much of a separation between these two teams. And I get the 49ers slumped a bit. Uh, you know, Brock Purdy was hurt. They had other injuries. I get all that. Uh, but the Eagles are still the team to beat until somebody actually knocks them off. Um, and, you know, I know they lost to the Jets, but, you know, in one of these bigger battles, the 49ers come in and show they're the better team. Um, I'm not believing that they're the better team just yet. I think the Eagles are still overall complete roster better than any team in football. Uh, 49ers are pretty close. Cowboys, I think, are pretty close. But, uh, you know, the Eagles shouldn't be underdogs at home to anybody. I don't know that I agree, but that the the other I mean, I don't know that I disagree. I'm sorry. But the, the interesting element to this, and that's what I want to get to to wrap this up, is we didn't truly get to see these teams go full strength against each other. I mean, Brock Purdy did go out of that game. And that's it's not just fascinating because we didn't you know, we don't have a true idea of what's going to happen, but there has been so much talking about that fact. I mean, the, the 49ers have talked a lot this year. I saw Hassan Reddick has already been talking about that, you know, you know, they got to come into the link and line it up and we'll get a chance to do this whole thing again. What are you, what, what's, what is the animosity? What is the trash talk in this matchup lend itself to, to this game that's coming up? Well, you know, I, I think, that for the Eagles' perspective, they do think that the 49ers have whined a little bit too much about that game. And I think from the 49ers' perspective, they obviously believe they didn't get a fair chance in that NFC Championship game. And I, you know, I think they've got a case, obviously. They were down, uh, you know, down two quarterbacks, and they were never, once that happened, they were never going to win that game. And you know, it was even boring to watch uh, for most of the second, for all the second half, most of the second quarter. As a matter of fact, so I could see where they're a little ticked off by that and want to, you know, kind of finish what they hoped they had started in the NFC Championship game. Um, you know, how much the trash talk actually matters? I don't know. The Eagles seem to find ways to get motivated constantly. They somehow think at ten and one that the world doesn't believe in them yet. Maybe it's the you know Jalen Hurts isn't the MVP. This isn't uh, you know they, they hear all the time about how they're not playing up to whatever their standard is and. Uh, you know, they're somehow pulling these games out. They won't think of themselves as a dominant team. And I think they want to show it. I think they they feel like they need to prove something going into games against the 49ers or the Cowboys. So I don't know that the trash talk will matter too much, but it's certainly an interesting side note. And, you know, I'd kind of sign with the 49ers a little bit on this because they didn't get a chance in that NFC championship game. For me, 
it's a chance to finish what I started watching back in January, that the matchup that we were all anticipating that we never really got. And that's, you know, Tuesday typically is a little early to be looking ahead to next week, but not, not for this one, not for a game of this magnitude with the bad blood involved in it. I I'm already so excited for it. We're going to talk to you after it's over on Sunday. Really looking forward to that. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm jacked for this one, Ralph, as usual, man, I really appreciate the time. Uh, I'm excited for it too. And my pleasure. Happy to join you anytime. All right. As per usual, that brings us to the last ritual before we turn the page to the next week. That is the power rankings, obviously. Spoiler of spoilers. The Eagles remain number one. Yes, the 10 and one Philadelphia Eagles staying right there at the top where they belong. It's the everywhere else where we see the chaos. So we'll do what we always do. We will start down the bottom of the league, work our way up with the biggest movers and shakers. I feel guilty about what I did to the Cincinnati Bengals this week. I dropped them eight whole spots. It's not your fault, Bengals. You lost one of the best quarterbacks in football for the season. Jake Browning, not your fault either, but watching the Bengals struggle to 220 yards and 10 points against the Steelers, hardly inspiring stuff. The Bengals don't seem like a playoff contender, so even though they were all the way up at 15 last week. It's it's just hard to lump them in with teams that are fighting for a playoff spot until proven otherwise. If Jake Browning catches fire or if this Bengals defense goes on a run carrying them, we can revisit this. But I think without Joe Burrow, we need the Bengals down in the 20s with the teams that we don't think are going to make any noise. It sucks. It's harsh. It's the brutal reality of the NFL. Bengals falling eight spots this week, up at 18, up five spots from last week. I'm look, I'm not from Wisconsin. I'm not a homer. I just I'm excited about this Green Bay Packers team. What do you want me to say? Beat the Chargers, then turned around and beat the Lions on Thanksgiving with the world watching. Jordan Love, five touchdowns, no picks over his last two starts. Finally looking like a guy who's figuring it out. The defense should be getting healthier in the coming weeks. They're right there. They're right there with the Vikings fighting for a wild card spot. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason for that is because the NFC nowhere near as strong as the AFC, but the Packers took some lumps early in this season, and at least right now, they seem like they're coming out of it on the other side. A young team, a team that's gaining confidence. They're just a lot of fun to watch. I hope they continue this upward trajectory because there's just a lot of exciting young talent on that roster. Even higher than that, I've got the Pittsburgh Steelers up four spots from last week, mainly just because they showed signs of life on offense. We talked about it Monday, cracking the 400-yard threshold for the first time in what felt like forever. Kenny Pickett looked pretty good. They got Fryermuth involved. Look, it's not that the Steelers are all of a sudden a juggernaut, but they were right there in the thick of it with an awful offense. Terrible. And they were still six and four. So if they can build on that 400 yards, they got to obviously score some more points. They still only finished with 16. But if that's the starting point post Matt Canada, maybe this offense can do enough to complement their defense and make the Steelers more of a legitimate threat. Two spots above that, the five-game winning streak 
They are 11th in the league. The Denver Broncos, I, I'll be honest, I feel kind of weird about it. The None of the Broncos games have been particularly eye-popping or impressive. I mean, the, the Bills game was a mess. The Browns game was just a, a defensive struggle. But the Broncos keep finding ways to do it, and you can't argue with their resume. You can't argue with the quality of the teams that they're beating. can't argue that Russell Wilson, even if it's not the gaudy statistical numbers we remember from four, five, six years ago, he's playing clean football. Sean Payton has turned him back into a useful, viable quarterback. Broncos are a tough out. No, You don't want to play them. They're the type of team that's just a pain in the ass. They're going to beat you up for 60 minutes. And at least for the last five weeks, nobody's been able to beat them. So they don't feel like a heavyweight, but their resume is as impressive as anybody's, particularly over the last month or so. I got them at number 11. Number seven, down five spots from last week. I'll admit it. I think I got a little too excited about the Detroit Lions. Maybe I should have been more concerned that the Bears' offense just exploded on them than I was that they managed to come back. I, I was excited about scoring 17 points in four minutes. That's a hard thing to do against anybody, but Lions play on Thanksgiving against Green Bay. It's time to officially be worried about their defense. They are struggling. They are giving up points. They are making people look very, very good. I still think the offense is wonderful. I think Jared Goff will eventually figure these turnover issues out but you need to see more from their defense. And I, I said it Monday too. So many of the NFL's top teams keep winning. Like it was a very chalk heavy Sunday in the NFL. Most of the teams that we consider Super Bowl contenders took care of business. The Lions absolutely did not on their home field. So they deserve to fall for that. It is what it is. Finishing it off this week, top two are pretty predictable. Eagles and Ravens up at the top. But I've got the 49ers vaulting two spots into the three spot. I think what they did to Seattle on Thanksgiving night was a little bit more impressive than what the Chiefs did to the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. Did not allow an offensive touchdown to Seattle. The offense is back to doing its thing. Number three in the league. I don't feel bad about it. It's like the three-game losing streak never happened. And obviously, that sets up a huge matchup. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert for next week. The Ravens are off at number two. So whoever wins Eagles 49ers is going to be in the one spot when we do this again next week. Just a little spoiler alert for you. That's what's going to happen. I'll say it one more time. I cannot wait for that game, but that does it for the power rankings. That does it for the show. We appreciate y'all so much. We will be back We've got so much to get into for week 13. We've got plenty more to say about Eagles Niners, not to mention all the other fun matchups. We get the Cowboys on a Thursday night again this week. Who doesn't love that? In the meantime, please go find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the YouTube channel, all the stuff they make me say every time we do the show. Please just, please go support the show if you like it, if you like me. I appreciate it so much. I will catch you all next time. 